Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hello and welcome to the first of two special episodes of Constructive Voices that we're releasing both together. We're bringing you our special post-COP26 roadmap for the built environment sectors. I'm Steve Randall, and even before the recent COP26 climate change conference, we knew that the construction industry has a vital part to play in addressing climate change. The panel that joined our special event on the 24th of November are some of the thought leaders who will help shape this. Shortly, Constructive Voices journalist Henry MacDonald will be interviewing Victoria Kate Burrows, Advancing Net Zero Director at the World Green Building Council. But now, though, I'd like to introduce someone who's another key part of our podcast, Pete the Builder, Peter Finn. Now, Pete runs his own construction business, but is also Ireland's favourite TV builder. Morning, Pete. How are you? Hey, how's it going? How are you, Steve? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Now, I can see that you're in the van at the moment. <laughs> you're, 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 you're on a job, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a, a job that has to finish this weekend. There's a family moving into our house, so... Um, I, I absolutely want to be part of this event, but I absolutely have to finish this job as well. So I'm going to be sitting in my van for the duration, but I'll be keeping a keen eye on, on everything that's going on. I'd just like to take this moment to to welcome everybody to uh, today's event and just to express how happy we are in Constructive Voices that uh, people have chosen our platform to discuss what is obviously an extremely important and and vital subject and it's something that's going to be part of our lives going forward and we want to be a big part of it and we're proud and honoured to have everybody here and to have such a strong panel it's it's really blown our minds. Yeah absolutely Pete and we'll be meeting them over the duration of this two-part podcast special but now let's welcome Neil Maxwell to our event. Neil has transitioned from being a very successful construction company managing director to becoming the founder of Changing Streams. Featured in The Guardian and on the ITV News Changing Changing Streams CIC has been created as a not-for-profit organisation with the sole intention of significantly reducing the use and reliance of plastic in the construction industry. Neil, welcome. Please tell us more about Changing Streams. Thanks, Steve. That's a very kind introduction. My uh, journey kind of changed in 2018 when I did an expedition to the Arctic and all I expected to come away with was some cool pictures and some great memories. In fact, it changed my life. So after 32 years of running a fit-out business in Liverpool and the northwest of UK, I decided I needed a change of track. So uh, I came face to face with the impacts that we're causing, the devastation that humans are causing to this planet. And uh, we see all these programs on Sally, the Blue Planet series, etc. But we don't really understand the depth of it until you actually visibly see it face to face in these harsh environments where life is very, very on, on a fine edge all the time. So when I got home, I we, we I hooked up with the University of Liverpool. Um, not have not an academic, so I don't know anyone in that space. So I met with a professor of oceanography at Liverpool University. We talked about the trip. We talked about possible actions I could take and things I could do to change things. And it was the professor that suggested that we perhaps need to think about starting a new company to address this. And that wasn't on my radar at the time. So we he hooked me up with Gareth Abrams, who's a doctor in environmental planning and uh, geography. He's an architect, still still practices, um, but uh, in passive sense almost now. 
And we've developed over the last two, three years, a project that's a business that now focuses on reducing, as Steve said, reliance of plastic. Our intention, we don't demonize plastic because plastic has got a place in the world. We don't, we're not sort of anti-plastic and we're certainly not activists. But what we need to do is we need to work on systems and solutions that provide best outcomes, leading to less plastic being used and looking at planet-friendly designs. Essentially, buildings account for nearly 40% of global greenhouse emissions, 50% of the world's energy consumption, and 40% of raw materials. I also know that 380 million tonnes of plastic are produced every year. 20% of that is for the construction industry. And in the UK alone, we generate 50,000 tonnes of plastic packaging waste a year. So the problem is significant. And whilst we're looking at the energy and the carbon reduction programmes, which are vitally important, we have to bring plastic into the equation. Hope that helps, Steve. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, just wonderful what you're doing there and and driving change, as so many of our our panellists today are. And, Neil, thank you so much for explaining what you're doing with Changing Streams and for an inspiring start to our event today. Amazing to hear about the changes that are possible. Now, joining us for this next section is a journalist with The Times and The Guardian among his credits. Henry MacDonald is a regular voice on the Constructive Voices podcast. He's no stranger to chatting with some of the industry's innovators. And today, Henry is talking with Victoria Kate Burrows, Advancing Net Zero Director at the World Green Building Council. Victoria oversees the pioneering global project to ensure that all buildings are net zero carbon by 2050. Victoria, welcome. And Henry, it's over to you. Uh, good morning to you all and good morning, Victoria. Hi, Henry. Good morning. I was thinking about the, the work you do. And I, the first thing I really I wanted to ask you was, how do you define a building? That is net zero. Uh, well, that's a, a great and very important question to start with. Uh, a huge amount of our work is helping to unpick what those definitions mean for, for different organisations, different people, different parts of the sector. But um, we've we've touched upon it already, how many emissions the, the global building and construction sector is responsible for. It's, it's 40%. Um, and we ultimately have to get to complete decarbonisation by 2050. That's our goal. It's for the sector, all buildings, not to use any emissions at all, not to use any fossil fuels, to be completely energy efficient and comfortable and healthy and resilient and uh, and equitable as a sector. Um, that is a huge challenge and something that cannot happen overnight. So for us, Net zero is part of the journey, that that formula of being completely emission free from the um, building and construction sector is simply not feasible in every type of building and every type of of country. In fact, some regulations prevent and, and limit the amount of renewable energy you can generate on site. So there's real barriers in the way. So for us, net zero is part of that journey. It means maximizing the reductions in terms of energy consumption, emissions, and also material consumption and resource use, as we've heard, extremely important. And then whatever you can't reduce, whatever those residual emissions are, that there's options there for you to either procure renewable energy from outside of your site or offset those remaining emissions. And that's the net part of the equation. And we do see that that process, that offsets are a really important and fundamental part of that transition to help us also achieve wider social and environmental change. But how is this status achieved? I mean, what are the key elements on your checklist yeah. that determine sure. that? So for us, when we're talking about net zero, 
and decarbonisation of, of the building sector, there's two really important components, let's say. There's the operational side of buildings. That's the energy that goes into heating, cooling, powering, lighting our buildings. And then there's the embodied emissions. That's the emissions from the materials and construction processes that go into creating a building before it's even used, right? Um, but also during the building's life cycle, we renovate buildings, we maintain them. There's always kind of elements of, of adding materials through the entire life cycle of a project. And together, those, those concepts need to be considered together because you might make design decisions at an early stage of a building project that affects its lifetime performance and what energy it will be able to use or um, even the types of materials and how that affects its performance. So there are two important and distinct concepts here which together create a whole life carbon approach. Um, but I can break those down a little bit. Um, for operational carbon, the absolute priority is to reduce our consumption. Um, so that means making sure that buildings are as efficient as possible, that we're using passive design techniques, we're harnessing the sun and the wind, and we're not kind of trying to replicate that with closed boxes. Um, and then our active systems within our buildings are as efficient as possible to deliver the necessary comfort levels that we need uh, within those spaces. And then that the power we do use, because we'll always use power and energy within the sector, uh, comes from the lowest emission sources possible. And that might mean generating renewable energy on site, uh, and it might mean buying renewable energy from offsite. Um, but all the arrows at the moment are pointing towards an electrification route, so that even if your building isn't completely fossil fuel free now, it could be in the future. So it's that combination of energy efficiency and fossil fuel free electricity, so renewable energy. And then from a uh, embodied carbon point of view, it's much more difficult to completely eliminate emissions as it might be for operational carbon. You can indeed have a building that performs completely on renewable energy. Less so for embodied emissions. There will always be some embodied emissions if you're going to build a building. Um, but ultimately, we look to the industry to reduce those as much as possible. And that might mean uh, choosing to renovate an existing building instead of building new. It might be thinking about if you are going to build a new building, what lean construction techniques are out there that really helps optimise the materials, what uh, low carbon material choices there are. How can you optimize a building for future adaptability? And ultimately, at the end of its life, how can we deconstruct buildings rather than demolish them to make the most of those materials that have gone into that building and can be used for, for future projects? And for us at World Green Building Council, again, we, we recognize that we can't be anti-buildings, can't be anti-plastic, can't be anti-buildings. We're going to be building buildings. Uh, we're going to double the world's building stock between now and 2060. That's a huge amount of development. Uh, that's development that might happen in countries that don't have energy codes at the moment. So we encourage the entire sector to go as far as you possibly can, even if your building codes uh, require you to build something far less, um, uh, far less ambitious in terms of performance. And that means that there has to be a role for offsets. We need to recognise that there is in the balance of net zero or the, in the equation of net zero, there will be residual emissions. And it's what we do about those residual emissions, which is important. So in a sense, uh, one of the, your, your key elements is recycling, but actually recycling buildings as yeah. well as anything else. Yeah, yeah there's um, some really cool concepts um, that are really trying to push this forward in terms of a, a circular economy. You know, really a building is an asset and something that should be used. There's lots of kind of, phrases out there that say the most sustainable building is the one that already exists. Um, 
I'm in a very old building myself in, in Kent in the UK, but actually home for me is, is in France. And we renovate old farmhouses to kind of really help extend their life. Those emissions that have already gone into the materials that are in that building should be extended for, for as long as possible. Um, it's a much harder option. Uh, the, the regulations and really the entire sector is kind of geared up to the easier route, which is always going to be building a new building. Uh, but in carbon terms, if you're applying carbon budgets to projects and considering things on the, the carbon impacts, not just the financial or the programmatic impacts, uh, then renovating an existing building will will almost always come out on top. Now, let's, let's talk about COP26. Uh, what were the standout things that were agreed and said in relation to building and the construction sector? And was the industry and its representatives in attendance? Yes, I am uh, just back from COP, uh, making my way home. Uh, it was an incredibly intense time. Uh, it was, COP26 is the first time since COP21 that the built environment and the building and construction sector has been in the presidency programme. So that's six years that we've waited for this topic, which as we've said is 40% of emissions, and in some cases could be up to 70% of emissions within cities and countries to be on the agenda at a climate conference, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. So in answer to your question, yes, we absolutely showed up. The industry showed up and made the most of, of that moment. Um, the World Green Building Council was part of what's known as the Building to COP Coalition, which is a, a group of industry organisations and, and networks that came together to support UK Bays and the COP presidency in delivering a really impactful programme of content and really make the most of, of that moment. Um, and I think because of the collective passion of our sector, uh, the ambition and wanting to demonstrate and highlight the fact that action is already being taken on the ground. There were more than 130 events dedicated to decarbonizing the built environment across those two weeks, just the built environment. It was almost like a built environment conference at a climate change conference. And that all culminated on the 11th of November, which was Cities, Regions and Built Environment Day. And we're really honoured to support Bayes in delivering some presidency events that brought together ministers and mayors and CEOs to, to talk about the action they were already taking. You know, there were lots of announcements, but we were also really keen to focus on what's already happening and inspire others to do the same. It's not sort of a future focus issue. It's something that's happening today. Um, and our network collectively announced uh, nearly 30 initiatives that will exemplify uh, deep collaboration within the within the network, within the um, the building and construction sector, and inspire that really positive systemic transformation in the built environment. We were pleased to see that there was mention of energy efficiency within the official text. Um, there were lots of uh, assets under management, sort of trillions of dollars worth of assets under management in the race to zero, which means that they'll be decarbonized, which is a great step forwards. Um, but we do need to see more action from governments in terms of those um, policies. We need governments to match the level of ambition that's already being demonstrated from industry, uh, who absolutely were there making announcements all over the place. It was really uh, difficult to keep track of them. So we actually had a press release bringing them all together because I think there really was that passion and, and determination for the sector that show, shows that despite um, they're not being a, a sufficient representation of the role of the built environment within nationally determined contributions as of now. The private sector is demonstrating what's possible. And so as we look to COP27 next year, we, we hope and as required, the Glasgow Climate Pact uh, explicitly calls on 
countries to rapidly scale up those ambitions um, in a year, not not five years, but by next year to arrive uh, at some shake with um, some more enhanced NDCs. And hopefully we've done enough to make sure that the built environment will now be represented in those in those statements of action. And in this role, what part will advancing that zero and the World Green Building Council play in your view? The World Green Building Council is a network of national green building councils all over the world. There are around about 17 and hopefully many of the the people listening to us will be members of their local green building council or at least be aware of them. Uh, The Advancing Net Zero programme works with these green building councils to develop programmes to drive decarbonisation strategy and that might be rating tools or education programs, certification schemes. We have advancing net zero accreditation um, for accredited professionals. Uh, There's certification schemes all around the world about validating that a building is performing at net zero. Um, And there's frameworks such as the one in in the UK from the UK Green Building Council. They're all designed to take the, the global concept, the global challenge of net zero, the vision or frankly the imperative of the sector to decarbonise uh, that the World Green Building Council sets and draw that down into local tools and initiatives that are appropriate to those particular markets. So the baseline of codes that we're dealing with in different countries completely varies. So for example, in Australia, they'll be able to tell you what good looks like from energy efficiency improvements beyond the code baseline. That will be different to what it is in the UK or in the US or even different parts of the US, depending on what the regulations call for. So it's really taking that global concept through the Advancing Net Zero project into local programs and action plans from the GBCs and their 36,000 members uh, around the world. And then we recognize that we have to go further, faster. We have this ambition of decarbonisation by 2050, but we can only get there if we overcome some of the challenges and barriers that are preventing us. That's like access to data and tools and knowledge and awareness and understanding. Uh, We know that net zero buildings are possible. They're, They're popping up all over the world in different building types, climates, countries that you possibly wouldn't expect. Um, they are happening all over the world and the dialogue is very much shifting to, you know, explain to us why you're not choosing to make this building net zero rather than tell us how you can, which is fascinating in the course of just a few years that this uh, that this narrative has been playing out within the sector. We, we really have to do more than a bit less bad, which is what the green building movement has always been pushing for, uh, is to build better buildings. We now have to really extend that. So the, the Advancing Net Zero programme and the Green Building Council is all about the how. So let's take this vision and, and convert that into what this means for our different markets. Um, but we do need action at scale. So the World Green Building Council has the Net Zero Carbon Buildings Commitment, which has um, 156 signatories from businesses, cities and states and regions who are committed to decarbonising across their own building portfolios or in the case of policymakers implementing policy, um, but for their own portfolios to achieve net zero across all of their buildings, whether it's five buildings or 5,000 buildings by 2030. And that is really helping us accelerate the transition because it helps create the demand. It helps us unlock all of those tools and and changes that are needed to, to bring this to scale. And it sends a really important signal to policymakers. And so we also, through the project work on, uh, through the programme, work on different projects in in different regions with cities, such as our um, Cities Climate Action Project in the Americas, or our Building Life Project within Europe with national governments to 
um, identify what policy looks like to help drive this forward? You know, what are we learning from these front runner pioneering projects that can help inform the types of policies that we need to see? So we're here with our network of GVCs to sort of help exchange that best practice. What have we learned in Canada that can be applied in Hong Kong, that can be applied in Chile and help each other to go further faster towards that goal? Now, you, you do mention governments and the importance of governments, you know, in doing the right thing in term, terms of policy. But global business has to play a part. Uh, you know, you've been in this sector for what nearly a decade. Do you honestly believe that the building construction sector, that hard headed business, take these concerns seriously? I do. I do. Um, and I've been really fortunate on a personal level throughout my career to work with some really real front runners in this space and see what's possible. And for me, it's a, it's a kind of a personal agenda to kind of take that and have it applied to, to every project. Because once you've proven it can be done, as I say, it really needs to shift then to proving why you're not doing it or like explaining or justifying why you're not doing it. You know, it's a, it's a real mind shift change or, or a kind of mindset change um, rather than a technical, technological or even financial barrier these days. Some net zero buildings are achieved at, at net zero cost. It's just about asking the right questions. And so... I've seen the potential from working on building sites myself, uh, from working with design teams that are just asking the right questions and uncovering the, the sorts of solutions that can make buildings create more of a positive impact than what they currently do in terms of being you know, so intensive on, on resources and consumption. And I think that is really what's carried through the, the leadership examples of the commitment. We're seeing an, an exponential increase from businesses, cities and governments that are taking that action, but it is led by businesses. We call this the ambition loop. So if businesses are taking action to decarbonize their buildings, in this case, it creates that confidence in policymakers that the industry is ready to deliver against bolder ambitions. And then they'll create roadmaps and we're working on roadmaps at a national level all over the world to say, you know, this is what needs to happen in terms of policy to get to your own net zero goals. And then that creates more confidence in more businesses and, and investors to kind of invest in the sort of supply chain changes. You know, we haven't touched on heavy industry yet, but that's a huge part of this equation is, you know, how do we decarbonize heavy industry processes? Um, and how do we set the specifications for buildings that kind of start with the why would you choose not to rather than how can we build this quickly and, and uh, you know, without consideration of those of those carbon impacts. So um, we did update the commitment recently um, in September to include whole life carbon and actually require those businesses and organisations to achieve ultimately net zero whole life carbon, but achieve those maximum reductions in embodied carbon and then offset the residual emissions by 2030, which is a huge ask. And we, we set the bar really high. And then we announced 44 businesses a month later signing up to that ambition because it's exactly what's needed. We announced them on Cities, Regions and Built Environment Day. Um, we said this is this is what we need to be doing if we're taking this seriously. We need to account for the emissions that are left after we've reduced as much as possible. And then 44 businesses committed to doing that. And that was amazing for us, far more than we expected to so soon after we announced the requirements. But it is absolutely game changing and it demonstrates what's possible and, and what can be done. And so one big outcome for us from COP26 was that we, you know, I started this conversation by dividing up the concepts of whole life carbon into operational and embodied, right? And yet all the way through 
the city's regions and built environment day, it was whole life carbon that was being discussed. You know, there was no, what about embodied carbon? There was no, what about the emissions from buildings? It was understood that we need to take this approach. And that is a, a remarkable shift from, from just a few years. And I think these solutions and knowledge are starting to become mainstream. And it's all about asking the right questions. And the sector can do that. You know, no matter what brief you inherit from your client, you know, making them aware that there are alternative approaches or alternative materials or, or ways that um, this same brief can be met, but with a lower impact is really starting to be embedded within the sector. And that gives me gives me huge hope for the future. A few more decades to go, I hope. Well, let's go back to governments. And one of the big pollutant nations, of course, is China. And the further growth of its economy, there means millions upon millions more people moving from rural areas into new mega cities which in turn means more buildings having to be constructed to accommodate them. Do you see any evidence that China is taking on board the need to make buildings net zero, or will it simply be a case of crash construction and forget forget about the ecological consequences? Yeah, again, another another huge question. And I think it applies to lots of countries, right? Not just China. That that development that I mentioned is going to happen in in Africa, in Southeast Asia, um, but yes, a huge amount, a huge amount in China. Ultimately, no country will be able to reach its net zero goals without reducing emissions from buildings. And, you know, at the moment, there's a there's definitely an increased awareness, but also shift towards that kind of focus. Like there was a, a project in London that was um that was denied planning permission recently and cited embodied carbon as one of the considerations. That's I believe the first time that's ever happened in London. So things are changing in a way that says if you build this or if you continue to operate in this way, it goes against your kind of very publicly declared net zero goals. So I think there's a there's a bit of a an expectation from the public, but also the global community in this sense. Um, the fact that they'll be required to be reporting against these targets year on year, um, you know, is going to, to help drive change, I think. Um, and one way that they really can do that is to ensure that the buildings they are going to build are built in the most sustainable way possible. Uh, and there is progress, I would say, not quite as fast as we would hope or as deep as we'd hope, but there definitely is progress. Um, China has a, a three-star certification scheme, which is still voluntary, but does recognize like demonstrate there's a recognition of of the challenge right that these buildings that there is uh processes and approaches to these buildings that can be taken that's better than code um so whilst they do have a commitment for carbon neutrality by 2060 they have great natural resources and potentials for renewables for carbon storage which will help speed up that decarbonization process there are regional and local governments setting up carbon neutrality roadmaps, which is a great start. Again, it's all about creating that awareness of, okay, if you're going to build these buildings, then this is how you could build them um, without having that that sort of negative ecological impact. Um, and mainly focusing on, on energy savings as well, making sure that the buildings are being built as efficiently in terms of resource consumption, but also efficiently in terms of energy consumption too. So it's really important for, for countries like China with these massive construction plans in place to get it right in the first place. Um, it's the easiest things that policymakers can do is to, where they are expecting major growth, to incorporate policies that help ensure those buildings are being built to the best standards possible, because if they're not, then they won't be fit for tomorrow's climate, which means they'll have to be renovated again in the future, which is a huge part of this challenge. So um, there's a lot of um, 
of support out there for, for for countries like China and others to make sure that where these buildings and de- major developments are happening, that they're done in the most responsible way. And and I hope that um, that more can be can be done. I think these the rating tools like Three Star, like Lead, are being driven by the commercial sector as well, by private investors. So if it doesn't come from the government's quick enough, it will come from the private sector. And and you mentioned earlier, I just wanted to pick up on this. Some of the countries where the most progressive uh, net zero projects are taking place in construction would surprise you. Can you give us a couple examples of parts of the planet where we'd be surprised that they're ahead of the game? Sure. Um, I mean, the ones that, that tend to surprise me are the ones that you wouldn't expect from a, a kind of climatic point of view um, or maybe from, you know, what what what's kind of expected within those those markets based on their local codes. So, for example, you'll see uh, net zero buildings in, in Colorado in the States where the temperatures get extremely cold. And so you'd expect that there's a hugely energy intensive um, you know, winter for them to make sure they're sustaining comfortable conditions through the winter. Um, and yet putting a really important and significant focus on the building fabric means that they need very low levels of energy to heat those buildings. And therefore, um, even though it's cold, they do get sun. And so they do um, uh, end up having a net zero balance on site or sometimes even zero carbon balance on their site. Um, despite them getting those extremely cold temperatures within the winter. Um, in Jordan, there is a program from the from the Jordanian government, which has driven huge amounts of investment and installations of solar panels on mosques and schools and other public buildings through Jordan, um, meaning there are hundreds and thousands of net zero buildings, possibly some of the highest number of net zero buildings than any other country. Um, that is driven by energy costs. So it was a heavily subsidized energy price within Jordan that over the space of, I think, four or five years shifted from being heavily taxed. And so therefore the cost implication of of running buildings, of operating buildings was extremely high. And so the installations of of solar panels on these projects meant that they could combat that problem and still use them in the way that they were used to. And then also those solar panels come with display boards so that you can kind of educate the public that are using these buildings as well. So, um, so yeah, I wasn't expecting to go to Jordan and see like a sea of solar panels everywhere. <laughs> it led to uh, local solar panel production plants being set up in Jordan because it meant the demand was so high so they didn't have to come from, from over the world, which is, which is remarkable. Do you think it's possible to have a, a global green standard drawn up for the construction industry to reach the goal of net zero carbon? A question we get asked a lot, to be honest, and unfortunately, it's not a very simple answer. I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we need local solutions to these challenges. You know, take the Middle East, Jordan, for example, there are other priorities there around sort of water consumption and ecology um, compared with, with different markets. So there really isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to this problem. In fact, you have different regions within different countries with different maturity levels related to net zero carbon and the concepts and the the types of solutions that would be applied would vary from one building next to another building let alone buildings in different parts of the country um you know if you have a very energy efficient building and you place it in one state in canada uh the performance of that building from emissions terms will depend on 
where that energy comes from and how that energy is generated. And you literally move it over the border to another state and it will have a different performance in terms of emissions because there's a different, um, different energy supply. So that's why we can sort of set these challenges at a very global level, sort of signal the direction for the sector, but to address the solutions, there's, there needs to be unique conditions and applications within the local level. So the local green building councils develop tools and guidance for their specific markets. Um, and the more that we're seeing buildings achieve these standards, the more, and again, the greater awareness is being embedded into how these things can be applied. Um, and so the more that that's done in, in greater collaboration between the private sector, but also with governments, we can ensure that we're all working towards that same vision, even if it means something slightly different at local levels. You know, for example, when we say net zero carbon, we also mean energy efficiency. We don't just mean carbon emissions. So setting those principles that we have mean that however it's being applied in each country still represents best practice. Um, and the, the kind of trajectory of achieving net zero will be different in different markets. The solutions will be different, but if they're all applied in a similar way, then ultimately the outcome will be the same. And that's that's what's important to us. Your overall assessment of COP26 in terms of construction and the, the goals that you're, you're, you're seeking to achieve. Uh, I'm loath to say marks out of 10. I don't want to, <laughs> that's a very unfair question. But um, overall, how do you think it will inv- advance things? And and even looking into next year in Sharm El Sheikh. I think I think we've come away really optimistic. Honestly, um, there's there's a huge amount to be tackled in terms of the climate crisis, and I don't think we'll ever come away from a COP conference feeling like we've got everything that we that we went there hoping for. Um, there's just it's just so multi-dimensional, and there's so much to be to be tackled. Um, and there were some big wins this year for the for the for the climate community as a whole. Um, for us, it was a major win, as I say, to to have the built environment recognised so significantly with its own day. And a lot of the messages that were coming out were extremely strong, extremely powerful, and we hope that that will be carried into uh, the updates to government NDCs. And we will use all our energies over the next year to make sure that that those ambitions are rested up into COP27. So for us, it's a it's a long game. Next year, COP will be in, in Egypt and Sharm el-Sheikh, and after that, it'll be in the UAE. And there's a huge amount of development happening in the regions that that represents. Um, and so for us, it was about making sure that our voices heard, our kind of united voices heard, that this is what needs to happen as a sector, that we are championing the fact that there are solutions out there. There's action that's already being taken, and it's not a, you know, a, a kind of, uh, a kind of shooting star you know it's something that we really are working on and is is being advocated for and is happening right now so we do see an appetite for for action um we do see recognition from world leaders we had ministers from countries all over the world talking about how the built environment was being addressed within their ndcs so it's not just a north america or northern europe or scandinavia um leading this leading this charge there are countries all over the world taking extreme action on on uh, adjusting emissions from the built environment so we are hopeful that if this energy and, and enthusiasm can be converted into action then it can help us keep on on track for the 1.5 degree goal so ultimately we encourage everyone who plays a part across the stakeholder chain if you have any engagement with buildings you know across the community of the building and construction sector professionals but also your own homes the the, the schools your kids go to you know 
we all interact with buildings every day. So how can we create that that change? How can we demand that change from our policymakers? How can investors and, and commercial um, real estate asset owners really drive this change by saying that it is not something we can afford to ignore? Uh, and I think the private sector will drive that charge. And then we're hopeful that come COP27 and onwards to COP28, there'll be more and more governments who are recognizing that and taking the action that we need to see as well. A final question really is this, this is going out to the world building construction industry community. Uh, you talked about your, your councils all over the world, your green councils. I assume you're looking more people to sign up, more people in the business to come on board with you and, and f- find more of these uh, councils all over the planet. Yeah, I guess, I guess what we really look for is is those organizations who really are interested and engaged and, and taking action within their organizations please do find out who your local green building council is reach out to them if there isn't a local green building council in your market do come and let us know and um, we know that there are several um in in the works uh, in countries where they don't exist already um, but you'll often find that there is one within your market and uh, that, that they do provide guidance for net zero or, or greener buildings and some of them have lots of extremely diverse agendas around social value around economy around supply chains there's a huge amount uh, that, that this industry touches in terms of, of impacts you know we've talked a lot about carbon today but um, of course we need to be taking a holistic approach to sustainable development and understanding how addressing the big carbon challenge of our sector uh, can help um, can help other parts of the, the issue as well um, one kind of one sort of passing remark I would say in terms of this this segment I would I would encourage, uh, wherever you are within that value chain, I would encourage that you either encourage your clients or that you are setting as a client carbon budgets for your projects. And if you don't know what a carbon budget should be, then then start by calculating it based on the current project that you're working on and then use that figure as a carbon budget for your next project or maybe drop it by 10% and then help to understand how design decisions aren't just evaluated on a on a financial basis but how they impact the carbon budget for the project as well and we've seen that have an incredibly powerful effect on projects all over the world that different um, material systems being created and specified even uh, material producers changing the way they produce their materials in order to ensure their products fit within a client's carbon budget like that's the level of impact you can have by something as simple as setting a carbon budget for the project alongside the financial one. So that's kind of, I guess, my two calls to action. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Victoria, that was a very comprehensive picture of not just the impact of, of COP26 on the business, but the the entire route map towards uh, net zero emissions. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria and Henry. Well, lots of takeaways there for us all. Plenty more to come as well as our wonderful panel of industry thought leaders pose their questions to Victoria. And you can hear that in part two of this two-part Constructive Voices special. It's available right now.